0: Earlier I read to you from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where Solomon presumably said that there's a a season, for everything there's a season under the sun, and then uh, the Apostle Paul took up that theme of seasons in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he commanded preachers to preach the word be ready in season and out of season. And, and so that makes my job easier than you, you might assume. Um, on the one hand, it's easy to think, well, what in the world do you say on an occasion on a day like this? But on the other hand, God, God has given me a source book. And, and whatever the season... Whatever we're going through, whatever the circumstances are, God's word is appropriate and says something to us and helps us to make some sense out of the situation and put things into perspective. And so I I really believe that in answer to my prayer, uh, the Lord laid on my heart, Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. So I read it earlier and it's context and there's, there's a reason why I read the whole context and we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so let's just unpack this passage, this beautiful passage in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ where uh, his heart towards children is revealed. So that's the theme, let the children Come to me. And uh, first of all, we notice here in verse 15, the disciples' misguided rebuke. Now, they, so the people who were flocking to Jesus, following Jesus, listening to Jesus' teaching, they were bringing even infants to him that he might, touch them. And at this point, I'd like to point out that uh, here in verse 15, the word that our English translations translate as uh, infants, it's the word braphos and that's an accurate translation. Uh, it means a newborn child or an older infant. And the reason I bring that up is because later on in verse 17, verse 16, when he says, let the children come to me, the word children is different. It's the word "paidon," which means basically any child uh, generally under the age of puberty. And so here we have parents, maybe mostly mothers, bringing children of all ages to the Lord Jesus, infants, and young children as well. And uh, you would think that that would be a good thing in the eyes of Christ's disciples because um, this actually wasn't an unusual practice. This is what people often did with Jewish uh, respected Jewish rabbis. They would want them to bless their children, and that's what they were doing with Jesus. They were bringing their children to Jesus for his blessing. So you would think the disciples thought that that was a good thing, but nope. So in the end of verse 15, we read, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. They rebuked these mothers, these parents, maybe they even rebuked the children because these children were being brought to the Lord. And that word rebuke, it's the same word that we're going to encounter later on in our studies through Matthew's gospel It's the same word in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, remember? And he says to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So here are the disciples, including Peter, rebuking this this whole scene. We're not told exactly what the disciples said in their rebuke, but it's kind of easy to imagine, isn't it? Don't bother the Lord with your children. He's too busy doing kingdom work. He's the Messiah. And children will only distract him. doesn't have time, doesn't have the energy. He has bigger things on his plate than to bless your children. Something like that undoubtedly is what they said to these folks in their rebuke. But oh, how mistaken they were. So Jesus responds. He corrects them. So Jesus called them to him the rebuking disciples, and he says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Not only do not rebuke them, but don't put any stumbling block in their way. Don't reschedule it. Don't keep them from coming to me. And by the way, uh, Mark and Matthew also recount this event, uh, and like other common events that they record, uh, there's a little bit of unique nuance between them. That's because the four Gospels are not carbon copies of each other, as if four human writers got together in a dark room and conspired what they would say. They're, they're independent, humanly speaking. From different perspectives with different themes, but it's the same Holy Spirit working through them, so there's no contradictions, but unique perspectives, and Mark adds this unique perspective in his account, and that is the, he captures the emotion of Jesus in his correction, so in Mark chapter 10 and verse 14, we read, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not not hinder them. So it's not just that Jesus stoically and quietly said to the disciples, let the children come to me, but he was mad. He was indignant. And he corrected them in that context. So why the indignation? Why was Jesus upset at this activity of of his disciples? The the disciples no doubt thought they were doing Jesus a favor. He, He was a busy man. He did have a lot on his plate. But while they were assuming they were doing Jesus a favor by keeping these children from him, they were actually misrepresenting Jesus and his kingdom because they, they assumed that there's children and then there's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and they're mutually exclusive. The kingdom of God is for Adults, for grown-ups, not for children. So Jesus set them straight. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Rather than children being a distraction from the kingdom of God, Jesus says that the kingdom of God actually belongs to them. And not only that, it's even more profound than that, Jesus turns the table on the disciples and he teaches in Matthew chapter 18 that the disciples have something to learn from children. Let's look at that passage, Matthew chapter 18 and uh, verses 1 through 5. Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That is a very strong indication that uh, not all of Jesus' teaching is sinking in to the disciples. They're competing with each other. They're looking for rank. And verse 2, calling to him a child Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, (laughs) by the way, I wonder what that child was thinking in the midst of Peter and his comrades. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never Enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you see, it's not just that the kingdom belongs to children as well, but children have something to teach grown up, burly disciples. Jesus wants us to learn from children their childlikeness, their childlike, uncomplicated humility. And by the way, that that is why I think that Luke arranged uh, chapter 18 the way that he did. And so if you think about this childlikeness that we're supposed to emulate as disciples, where this child-likeness is the opposite of those in verse 9, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And uh, remember the words from Matthew 19 that we, or 18 that we just saw. Um, Jesus says in verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then also, Matthew and Mark include the story of the rich ruler. And so a, a childlike faith doesn't recognize the value of stuff so much. And you, you've you all had this experience, I'm sure. Maybe you bought this really expensive gift for a kid, maybe your own kid, and they look at that expensive gift and they look at this big old appliance box and they go to the appliance box they they don't get it all they know is well that looks way more fun at the moment than that big expensive complicated adulty looking thing and in that way they uh manifest this this relative innocence with respect to, to riches because like Jesus says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And sometimes we need to be reminded that we need to turn and be like little children when it comes to our esteem and pursuit of riches. And so... That's the lesson that disciples are supposed to learn from children. Not that children are absolutely innocent, and that's another whole story. That's not the time. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is saying that there is this relative childlike innocence when it comes to competition for rank and the pursuit of riches and questioning every single thing skeptically that disciples of Jesus can learn from. But there is more than that. It's not just that this childlikeness is consistent with the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's not just that. But the language of Luke implies that Childlikeness isn't the only thing that belongs to the kingdom of God. Children themselves do. For to such little children of all ages belongs the kingdom of God. The uh, 19th century Anglican. Minister and leader J.C. Ryle had this to say in his expository thoughts on the Gospels. Really getting to the point. The souls of young children are evidently precious in God's sight. Both here and elsewhere, there is plain proof that Christ cares for them no less than for grown-up people. The souls of young children are capable of receiving grace. They are born in sin and without grace cannot be saved. There is nothing either in the Bible or experience to make us think that they cannot receive the Holy Spirit and be justified even from their earliest infancy. And maybe you think, wow, that sure is reading a lot into Jesus' words. But the Bible has lots of examples for us of believers, followers, Christians, who happen to be very young. There's the example of Samuel. Samuel. And uh, the Jewish historian Josephus suggests that he was 12 years old when the Lord called him to be a prophet in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And presumably, Samuel knew the Lord well before that. There's King David. And we uh, read David's words in Psalm 22 and verses 9 And 10, where he says to the Lord, poetically, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. David's confession, his his testimony, which was given by inspiration of God, I remind you, was that he was a believer since he was a nursing infant. There's John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1 and verse 41. And when Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist, heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's an interesting word order. Luke doesn't say Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and then the baby leapt in her womb. It was, there's the greeting of Mary, John the Baptist leaps in her womb and then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit the text is pretty clear that John the Baptist as uh, an infant in utero responded to the words, to the greeting of Mary. And it's easy to think, well, that's impossible. Do you remember what Jesus said in regard to the rich ruler? What is impossible with men is possible with God Amen. and don't forget this if you were saved as an adult that was no less impossible you may be mature and you may be able to talk and reason but the Bible says about all of us because of our state in sin that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And it's impossible, Romans chapter 8, it's impossible for those who are in the flesh to please God, and yet God saved us. And when God saved us, we're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I think it's chapter 4, that... The God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the idea is, it took nothing less than the creative power of Almighty God when he said, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1. It took nothing less than omnipotence to save us as adults because we were so blind because of sin. So if that's the case, it's nothing for God to save a John the Baptist in utero or to regenerate a David when he was nursing. There's also the example of Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.15. Paul had commended Timothy and his uh, mother Lois and grandmother Eunice, commended them for teaching Timothy the word of God. And he reminds Timothy in how from childhood, and by the way, remember Brafos and uh, Pideon, Uh, Infant and and little child. This is the word in 2 Timothy 3.15. It's brephos again. So now we're talking infancy. And how from childhood, from infancy, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Since Timothy was an infant... His mother and grandmother were teaching him the word of God. And at some point, God used his word in Timothy's life and saved him. So no wonder Jesus rebuked his disciples. They had completely messed up in their assumption the nature of the kingdom and even the character of Jesus. Jesus in spite of their assumption, deeply cares for children, even little children. And he does say in verse 17, we've talked about this a little already, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Really turn the tables on the disciples. And then uh, By the way, Matthew adds at the end of his account in Matthew chapter 19, in verse 15, Matthew 19 and verse 15, and he laid his hands on them and went away. So, the disciples tried to stop these children from being brought to the Lord, but Uh, When the Lord corrected them, he corrected the whole situation. He got them out of the way so that he could lay his hands on these children and bless them. So, some encouragement for mothers. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. We forgot to mention there are flowers in the back. And uh, those flowers are for all women. We do want to honor you and uh, bless you today on, on Mother's Day. But some encouragement for mothers. Jesus obviously isn't here physically. His physical body is in heaven. His physical glorified body is in heaven. He's seated on a throne uh, Stephen saw him stand, but he's not physically here. But you can still bring your children to Jesus for his blessing. You can pray to Jesus for your ch- uh, your. You can pray to Jesus for your children. You can tell your children about the gospel. That. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Explain it the best you can in a way that a child could understand it. The New Testament tells us that Jesus draws near when his gospel is preached. When he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself, all kinds of people, every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue, and age. And Jesus still blesses children. Not necessarily with the touch of his physical hands, like we heard from Matthew 19 and verse 15, but with the touch of his saving grace Received by faith. And you can see the fruit of saving faith in a kid's life their childlike trust in Jesus, their desire to hear about Jesus, to pray to Jesus, to worship Jesus, to obey Jesus. It may not be as developed and articulate as an adult's expression of faith, but it's just as real. And it's just as saving. Which is why when the ugly reality of death in this fallen world strikes a seven-year-old boy, It's not just wishful thinking, and it's not just um, religious sentimentalism to say that even though Forrest or Tees isn't here with us, he's with the Lord. Forrest had been brought to the Lord. And he had been taught the scriptures that Timothy's, the same scriptures that uh, young Timothy had been taught by his grandmother and mother. Forrest had been taught the word of God by his parents. And he heard the word of God at church too. And he loved coming to church. And he said that to his siblings, to his family. Forest had been brought to the Lord, and the Lord blessed him with salvation. Christ's promise applied just as much to Forest as it did to the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And this is an important part of our hope as believers. When we think about the death of fellow believers, no matter who they are or how old they are. I ask you to turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter four. And let me read to you the conclusion first of the passage we're gonna read so you know what we're doing. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. These words are supposed to encourage us because of fellow believers who have passed. So notice verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, and that's a euphemism, for a believer who has passed away. From our perspective, as we see their lifeless body, it appears as if they're they're asleep. And they are asleep in the sense that their bodies are going to come to life again when Jesus comes again on the last day. They're, They're not asleep in the sense that they're in some sort of soul sleep or unconscious state until Jesus comes again. No, they are with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, paradise. But nevertheless, there are believers, there were believers in Thessalonica who needed to be encouraged because there were fellow brethren who had fallen asleep in the Lord, they had died. And so Paul wants them to be informed. So he continues that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And uh, Casey said to me yesterday, she has no idea how an unbeliever could go through this. Sorrow, this darkness that they're going through because they are grieving. They are weeping, but they also have hope. And the Lord does not want us to grieve as others do who have no hope. He wants us to grieve, but with our hope, always in mind, always in view. Paul goes on, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, I believe that. Do you believe that? Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you know anybody in the Lord who has died? Here we have a description of, of all of those, but including forest. Jesus is going to bring them with him when He comes again. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We will not precede them in the resurrection that Paul describes in pretty uh, incredible detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's not going to be two different resurrections. There's one resurrection, and all believers are going to participate in that resurrection together. We who are alive or are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, not secret and not quiet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. First. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. There'll be this great reunion. And the scene here is supposed to be mirroring uh, a military sort of situation where this conquering general Comes into a city that's been subdued by his troops, and he's got other troops in tow with him. And those who are loyal to him come out from that conquered town and unite themselves with the whole entourage so that they all march into that conquered city together. That's Paul's word picture. So we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thank God for our hope. Our hope is not based on wishful thinking. It's not based on psychology. It's not based on Hallmark greeting cards. Our feelings, our our hope is grounded in the word of God. And God cannot lie. This word has been Proven, validated over and over and over again for thousands of years. Its prophecies have been fulfilled. Its teachings are true. And all of its promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let's comfort one another and comfort the Ortiz family with these words. Let's let's pray. Lord, what can we say but thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the promise of eternal life and even a future resurrection on a new earth where death itself will finally be taken away, the last enemy. And there we will be with you forever. And we will enjoy heaven on earth. And you will wipe away every tear. And there will no longer be sorrow or sickness, suffering or death. Would you help us to live in light of that great day? Would you help us to weep with the Ortiz family to come up alongside of them and encourage them? Would you help all of us, Lord? The Ortiz family themselves and us who are grieving with them, help us in our grief to grieve not as those who have no hope, but we are so thankful for our heavenly hope. We pray that you would save sinners, Lord, through this. We know that the gospel has been shared. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who's unsaved. And we pray that when we're uh, struggling to know what to say on this occasion or fumbling fumbling our way through the word of God, maybe... Today's the day of salvation for them. Lord, we pray that it would be. We pray that you would bring new spiritual life to pass, even through your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.